we were together in chapter 8 of Zechariah, which is the second half of a literary unit that starts with 7 and ends with 8, but it focuses on the glory that awaits Israel. And that uh, first few verses of that chapter, the Lord of hosts, uh, he changed the name of the city from Jerusalem to the city of faithfulness, city of truth. And then he changed the name of the, the mountain of the Lord of hosts to the holy mountain. The Lord then proceeds to lay out 11 yet to be fulfilled prophecies over Israel. And uh, eight prophecies follow that have been fulfilled and seven blessings that he's going to pour out on Israel. He continues to emphasize that Judah, uh, they needed to, to uh, speak truth to one another, to judge in, in, a, in, in civil court kinds of things with truth and with righteous judgment between each other. <clears throat> they were commanded to avoid devising evil in their hearts towards one another and to hate perjury. At last, late, late in chapter 8, the Lord gets around to answering the question that started chapter 7. Then it was the question that came from that delegation that came down from Bethel asking, do we continue to weep and mourn and grieve and fast for the calamities, the days that were calamitous in the history of of the Jews when the wall was breached by the Babylonian army, when the temple was burned, etc. And, and the Lord uh, avoided answering that question until right at the end of chapter 8, in which he says, oh yeah, all those days that you've been weeping and, and fasting, those days are going to be joyous gatherings. And all that hurt memory is just going to, it's going to be gone. The Lord says, that uh, uh, as he pours out his blessing on Israel, the surrounding Gentile nations will come to the Lord to worship and serve him. Now, we know that hasn't come to pass. Okay? A whole bunch of that stuff is waiting, and waiting for us as well, to, to walk in and be part of his, his team. All right, let's pray. Father God, uh, you exert your sovereignty in the course of history, in the marketplace, over men and nations, we here would be a company of believers who bow to honor you. We would be a people who obey you, Lord. We would be a nation who relies on you, not on politics, not on markets, not on media or entertainment or any other form of distraction and false worship. Here we are today, Lord. Please open our hearts and minds to the scriptures. In Jesus' name. So we're going to go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. But you have to realize when you get there, you step away from eight chapters of visions. And now we're going to be in six chapters that are completely different. Those first eight chapters were elegant Hebrew prose. It, it, it flowed. Now we step into six chapters of poetry. Now, in Hebrew, uh, it has rhyme and and meter, and it doesn't translate for nothing in English. But it's there. Just know that it's there. <clears throat> um, and when we get into chapter 9, we're going to get exposed in a deeper way to the Lord's summation uh, of, the, of Old Testament theology that he's been building. It's been building and building and building. And now these chapters, there's, there's summary statements that are very clear. Now I handed out, uh, Jonathan passed around that, that uh, 
statement is called the intertextuality of the scriptures that are quoted in the book of Zechariah, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, I think only Isaiah has a, a greater number of other references that you could put your finger on. But my initial response was, wow, this prophet knows his scriptures. And then I went, wait a minute, this prophet is writing down what the Lord says. So the Lord is the one who moved those other writers of scripture, and it's in his library as well, and so it comes out again in Zechariah. But it's an immense list there for you. In a sense, it, it helped me get a sense of this really is a, a moving scripture toward some future date in the future, which is what the whole business of prophecy about Messiah and end times things is doing. <clears throat> Yes, it, it's cross-references from other writers that appear quoted in Zechariah. So um, let's begin in chapter 1. Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. That's correct. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. Okay, This, this verse starts with the name of the Lord, Yahweh. You see it in your text capitalized, capital L-O-R-D. And that's translated as Yahweh. You know, the, the God who is the I Am. Okay? Uh, we know from Assyrian records. Now, Assyria took its records on cuneiform tablets. They were lar- they're, they're sort of like a, a large iPhone-sized tablet <laughs> uh, of, of uh, perhaps a half an inch thick of uh, barely damp clay and, they, and there was a, a special scribe that could punch and, and swoop and point and things like that and they laid out records and it wasn't long ago maybe 30 years ago that a Syrian uh, farmer working his land in Syria fell through a hole in the ground and he was in a library that had been buried and in that library were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these cuneiform tablets. And uh, they, those, some of those tablets were Assyrian, and they spoke of this town, Hadrach. And we know it to have been a, an armored, uh, if you know, a walled, a walled market city. It had some military presence, and it was a, it was a place for markets. And then second, uh, Damascus uh, was the capital of Aram. Uh, which is the biblical, in, in those days, in the days of Zechariah, Aram was a, a potent military. It rose and it fell, it fell, but it was there. And it was an enemy of, of Israel and Judah. Uh, Damascus was a major uh, government center for the Persian Empire. It was a cultural center for the whole region. And Damascus had bitterly opposed Judah from, from forever, since its very beginning. Now, here comes the word of the Lord, Yahweh, against those two cities. And it falls on them. It's a burden. It's weighty. It comes down on top of those cities because it's judgment. And verse 2 continues. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. And that's a smart aleck comment on the part of... <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, uh, those people think that they're very wise. All right. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piles up silver like dust 
and gold like the mud, the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. So we know about Tyre from King David, because David contracted with Hiram, king of Tyre, to transport by sea, probably uh, towing, great logs of cedar harvested in the uplands, in the highlands of Lebanon. Because David was piling up, piling up, piling up. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says, it ain't you. You're a man of blood. You're not the man to build it. But his son, Solomon, took all those piles of resources and built the temple. Now, in those days, exceeding wealth was demonstrated when you had a house of wood. Otherwise, you lived in a stone something. (laughs) Small hovel or large, whatever it was. But Hiram is noted and Tyre is noted. There was Phoenician peoples who lived on the coast, and they were the ones who could transport by sea those heavy logs to get them down to Israel. So here, at the, in the last line, you note that the name of the Lord is not capitalized. It's capital L, small O-R-D. And here, Zechariah introduces Adonai, God Almighty. Okay, so in the, in the, first, the first verse we have Yahweh, the I Am, and then we have Adonai, same person, same part of the Trinity, but an expression of who he is by nature. <clears throat> and then Zechariah, having done that, he follows, uh, 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 what follows is a list of coastal strong points. Um, uh, are, you know, they were to have been walled, in some sense, walled cities, but they were, they were ports on what is today modern Lebanon. And um, they had been planted there, and they were trading cities that the Phoenicians had founded. If you want to go to Lebanon today and be a tourist, which I don't really recommend because it's not on the list of safe places for <laughs> American tourists to go wander around, uh, there are the, the ruins of all these coastal cities that the Phoenicians had, had launched. And the people who live around them, around those places or in those, in those same sort of neighborhoods, they think of themselves as of Phoenician descent. Yes, they've intermarried. There's some Arab blood. There's some European blood. They, if you ask them, they're Phoenician. 150 years after Zechariah dies. He dies in 480 B.C. 150 years pass. Okay? 100, is that right? 150? Yes. Okay. 330 B.C. Alexander the Great had just crushed the, the Persians and sent them running. In, in nor- There's a great battle in northern Syria, and all of Alexander's troops wanted to run down that army. Just keep going. Just kill them as they run away. And Alexander went, nope, stop, come back, line up. We're going the other direction. Because he was a premier military mind, and he realized if he continued down the... Euphrates River, he left enemies behind him. And he wanted to make sure that before he went after Persia, he took care of all those enemies behind him. So he turns out of northern Syria and he rolls right across Damascus and Hamath and flattens them. 
or, or in the case of Damascus, they, they became a tribute city. They became a vassal city. They paid to stay relatively free. But he made his point by how he handled that. And he takes his armies and he goes out to the coast. He moves to the Mediterranean and he starts working down the coast through these, these Phoenician cities. And some of them tried to make peace and some of them tried to resist. Ultimately, all, they all were suppressed and, and many in ruins. And he arrives in Tyre at 333 B.C., just months after his, his victory against the Persians. And at that time, Tyre had an old fortified market city on the mainland. And it had its temples and it had its marketplace and things like that. It, had been the, it was the original. That was where the Phoenicians had, had built. But then they had taken over an island 800 yards off the coast. Eight football fields out there across salt water. And it had its own harbor and they built a citadel. And that part of New Tyre had been besieged numerous times by other emperors and they never beat it. They, never, they could never take it. So here comes Alexander. And Alexander <clears throat> uh, comes to town and the Tyrian leadership, they would rather be at peace with him than dead. So they offer him an opportunity to, to make an offering in one of their temples, which is the way that that apparently happened. And um, what Alexander wanted was access to the citadel on the island. But that wasn't what he was offered. He was offered, oh, you can offer your your sacrifice over here in the old city. That didn't cut it. So his armies raised old Tyre. They just flattened it. They turned it into rubble. And he besieged the new Tyre on the citadel on the island. Now, when he traveled overland, he didn't have his navy. Obviously, Greece had a navy. Macedonia had a navy. But he'd been inland. So now he doesn't have time to turn around and say, come on, I need the navy. He turns to the king of Cyprus for naval support. And uh, that king sends his navy down and they try to suppress the, uh, the ships of Tyre. Uh, Tyre was a global... Those sailors went all over the world. They were Phoenicians. Uh, there's Phoenician writing in the Ohio River Valley in America. Okay. Right, they went all over the world. And the king of Tyre sends his navy, and they didn't do well against the Tyre, the Tyre forces. And uh, they have to withdraw. By this time, Alexander is not, he's just hopping mad because he didn't get what he wanted. And he starts to build a causeway from, eight, from the beach to the island. He's going to take the rubble from old Tyre and build himself a road out there. Yeah, but the farther out he gets, the deeper it becomes, and it becomes an engineering problem. And he's, he's tired of waiting. So just before the completion of the causeway, he leads a naval raid. He gets aboard a ship, takes a bunch of, of his top warriors, and however he did it, he breached the harbor. He gets into the armored harbor, over, over, overcomes the city, and the citadel falls, and Tyre is reduced to a rock. So in verses 1 to 4, here in Zechariah 9, all those prophetic statements that the Lord has a burden against those cities, that's all fulfilled by 332 B.C. In verses 5 to 8, 
It says, the burden of the Lord falls on the Philistine cities along the western borders of Judah. Now, if you recall, the Philistines really were present in the time of Saul, in the time of Samuel, and they, they obviously predate that because they themselves um, had, had, they were, they, we, we believe they had come from the sea as well and, and had landed on the coastline of, of Israel and built walled cities. They had their own set of gods, and they were a thorn in the side of, of Israel. And uh, the Lord says, okay, Philistine cities, it's your turn. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell at Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan of Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him that passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. So Alexander the Great moves his armies south. And he encounters the walled cities of, of the Philistines. Their resistance against him could be measured in days. They, they were crushed. They were destroyed. The, the Philistine culture and the Philistine population were scattered. And um, the king of um, Gaza was tied to the back of a chariot and dragged through the streets and executed in that fashion, just as the Lord had pre predicted. <clears throat> You see, the Lord ultimately reigns supreme. You know, all Israel for hundreds of years have been saying, God, these people are such a pain. They raid, they steal, they, are, they kidnap, they take our harvests, they invade our lands. They're much better armed because they had bought chariots from, from Egypt. They were a, a, one of the strong military presence uh, nations in the region. And the Lord ultimately answers their cry. But then he says, he will gather the remnants of those shattered people into his arms. Now, we know that that hasn't happened. Because some of those people probably intermarried and they became what we call today Palestinian. Okay? That hadn't happened. They want nothing to do with Yahweh yet. All right? In verse 8, the Lord says uh, that, that he will camp around his house which is the city of Jerusalem, because of an army that passes and then turns and comes back. Continues, the Lord says, no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for he has seen it with his eyes. So in the first half of, of verse 8, uh, there's an event that's recorded in, in Jewish history. It was written in the Mishnah. It was in oral tradition. There were other writings. And the man who compiled that was named Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian, and he's 300 years after, at least 300 years after Alexander goes through. And he was commissioned to write the history of the Jews. So he goes to the oral and the written things, and he compiles it. And we think some of this is true. Okay? There's, there's a lot of history in between. Okay? But what happens is, once the Philistines are crushed... Alexander turns his forces and heads straight for Jerusalem. So what 
Josephus recorded was the encounter of Alexander with Jerusalem. Um, the head, excuse me, the high priest in Jerusalem was named Jadus, and he knows what happened to the Philistines. He knows what happened to Tyre. He, he knows what's coming, and he's terrified. He, he is deeply concerned for his, the people that he leads as part of the temple complex as high priest and for all the city. And he, he goes into a fitful sleep, and the Lord speaks to him and gives him direct information of what he's supposed to do. So Jadis wakes up early and gathers all the city leaders and says, here's what we're doing because the Lord told me to do this. He goes home, changes into his very best. The, the robes of the high priest. And he's instructed the leaders of Jerusalem and all the priests to dress in white. And they hang wreaths on the, on the wall and wreaths over the gate. And the gate opens and they march out to face Alexander and his armies. And there's a pause. And Jadis steps forward, walks up to Alexander and prostrates himself face down on the ground. And then this white crowd, if you were a white-dressed crowd, kind of gathers around. Obviously, Alexander had military retinue with him. You were going to crowd. You were not going to crowd him. Okay, but, but there's a surrounding that happens of these unarmed, white-dressed people from Jerusalem. And together, in one voice, they shout a welcome to Alexander. And then something utterly inconceivable happens. Alexander prostrates himself before Jadis, the high priest. And the, what Alexander had troubling with him were, were kings of other nations who probably had added their military forces to his. And the kings came along to see be part of the booty, part of the, the experience, etc. So this, this gathering of kings turned to Alexander and they go, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Why did you, you're on the dust in front of this priest. Here's Alexander's recorded answer. He said, it was not before him that I prostrated myself, but to the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. Before he left Macedonia, it is recorded that, Ma that Alexander had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the hyacinth blue and the gold robes of the high priest. He saw the mitre set on the high priest's head with the gold, the gold plate on the front that had the name of God inscribed on the front of it. And when he walks up, this guy walks up and prostrates himself in front of him. That's an, you know, it's like, I've been here before. So when this is all said and done, Jadis takes Alexander into Jerusalem and coaches him through how to make an offering to the Lord Most High. The sum of this account is that Alexander's armies approached Jerusalem intent on slaughter, but then they pass by and they go down and they conquer Egypt, that other enemy at Alexander's back. And then knowing that that's in place and, and suppressed and at peace, the army returns and bypasses Jerusalem and goes for a final encounter with the, Persian, with the Persians. Now the Lord subcontracted the judgment over the Syrian cities, the Phoenician cities, the Philistine cities, and Egypt to a, a Macedonian named Alexander. And he prepped Alexander with the dream. The second half of verse 8 about the Lord saying, never again is this city going to get run over. 
has not come to pass yet. Because we know subsequently it has been run over since the time of the time of Zechariah. But there's a prophecy yet to be fulfilled here where the Lord says, I'm, I'm going to encamp here and it's never going to fall again. Now, in verses 9 and 10, the Lord introduces the king who's coming. So here, we're, here's a couple of verses on, on Messiah. Right here. Greatly rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is one of those verses that Luke 19 fulfills. One of the prophecies about how Messiah comes to Jerusalem. He comes mounted on a colt. And it speaks of peace and humility. If he'd come on a war horse, that would have spoken to the, the, the leaping crowd. You know, the, the, the shouts of Hosanna. That would have spoken to them that this one on the war horse is coming to take over. But that's not what happened. In addition... This king who was coming is described as just. And the Hebrew word for that is tzaddik, which means righteous. And additionally, it says he would be manifesting himself as a savior. In verse 10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak, he, this is the king, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the Lord Almighty promises to eliminate the three, one of the three primary, you know, all three of the primary assets of any ancient armory. The horse, the, the war bow, and the chariot. And then he speaks about peace to the nations, that his dominion be from sea to sea and from the the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Now, beginning at verse 11, the Lord Almighty refers to the blood of the covenant. It, the, that wording only appears in one place, in the exact word order. And it's in Exodus 24. <clears throat> uh, it rises next again in Mark chapter 14 as Jesus introduces a new revelation in the passing of the Passover cup. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. It's a new covenant, people. Okay, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Zechariah reference is, is to the law given through Moses, ratified by an annual blood sacrifice before the Lord. And then the Lord Almighty says he would free Judah's prisoners. He's still speaking about those that are stuck back in Babylon. Okay, They're, they're being, you know, they're being held in some fashion whether by, by their own choices or by someone's iron will. He would free, those, uh, free Judah's prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to point back to Babylon and say, that was a waterless pit. In verse 12, it calls out for those freed prisoners to return to their fortress. Now here, scholars... Scholars want to split hairs. They, want, they really want that fortress to be Jerusalem. But what Jerusalem is in the day of Zechariah is a finished temple surrounded by a devastation of broken and burned walls. 
That doesn't change until Nehemiah comes. Okay? That's 40 plus years after Zechariah. Uh, rather, I, I really think here uh, the Lord is calling that remnant, those prisoners, back to himself as fortress, as the rock, as the shield. Adonai, <clears throat> he continues to pray, uh, proclaim that these prisoners and all of Judah would be restored twice over. They'll get what was theirs back. And there's more coming in the future. Verse 13 is a picture of how Adonai will shape Judah into a war bow. And then he takes Ephraim. Now Ephraim was the largest tribe of the ten renegade tribes that went north and formed the nation of Israel. Okay? And, and he says he will take Ephraim and fashion Ephraim into an arrow. The Lord Almighty says he will stir up Judah against the sons of Greece. So right there we stop and we kind of go, okay, eschatologists, those who'd spend their lifetime studying end times things. They take all the prophecies and they parse it and slice it and get it right down to what they think their system will work on. Okay, they, they want to look at this. They want it all wrapped up nice and neat in a bow. And they want to say, aha, see, this is the rise of, in the future of the former Greek empire, which was mentioned by Daniel. But we don't know that with any surety yet. It is, po- it is possible, it's true, or the Lord might have yet uh, so another plan in which he is going to uh, take Israel to war with some Grecian, Grecian empire, yet unknown. <clears throat> but he does say he's going to make Judah a warrior's sword. Regardless, the Lord will use Israel as a tool in his hands. In verses 14 to 15, the Lord speaks, the, the text speaks of the Lord God as a warrior. Then the Lord will appear over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. So the picture here of the Lord of hosts, okay, is he is above, he is over the armies. He's in a position of overwatch. He's in a position to shield them from any, any warfare that comes from the second heaven, from Satan and his minions. The Lord has their back. Okay? And it, then it says he's going to send forth his arrow like a lightning. Now, that could be Ephraim, just previously mentioned. Okay? Or he could be speaking metaphorically, as in the lightning bolts that come out are his arrows. <clears throat> Ask him when you see him soon. Okay, um, and then he's going to blow the trumpet. It's going to be so, it's, it, the shofar is going to be so loud, you won't hear the thunder from the lightning. It, it, he's calling the nation of Israel to war. <clears throat> now, um, for millennia, okay, Baal, had been the rain god. 
and the war god to the Canaanite peoples. And for more than a thousand years, the people of Israel had been tempted to just go over the hill and get involved with that false worship. Okay? Baal was pictured as riding in the clouds and casting lightning bolts. His semen was seen as the rain that fell, hit the land, and made it fertile. Now the Lord steps forward to reveal that only he can fight in the heavens and do the miracles that the Baal followers claimed. The reference to marching in the storm winds of the south, this is a reference to the calm scene. This is the, the walls of red dust that come roaring out of the Arabian desert at high temperature, and they're filled with lightning. Dis, you know, there, there's so much friction between particles inside that wall of dust that you get dry lightning. But it is a picture of this storm that roars up from the south, and the Lord says, I am going to march in that southern storm, and there's going to be a deluge of rain and lightning, and, and all this is going to overcome the enemy, and it's going to bless Israel. <clears throat> the Lord says that the, the nation, is once they're, def- they're defended, they are going to consume their enemies and trample on the sling stones. So the sling stones were the, were the uh, ammunition for the slingers. The farmers, the shepherds, King David, the boy shepherd, <clears throat> and those who were designated in armies as slingers. Okay? You could take a baseball-sized, round, smooth stone, put it in a sling, and this was a standoff weapon. You could hit somebody 200 yards away. With a, with, with a rock going 100 miles an hour. Now, I've stood in my batting cage at home. I know what a 100-mile-an-hour baseball sounds like. There's a hiss. There's a, there's a sizzle as that thing passes you. Okay? So if one of those sling stones gets you, it's going to wreck your day. Okay? And the answer here that the Lord says is, the, the, the slingers, were, they'd stand there with a sling in their hand, and they're pictured, actually, in ancient you know, carvings on walls. They have a mountain. They have a pile of those sling stones next to them. Okay? You go across the bay to the, to the um, uh, Graduate Theological Union Museum. There's a library over there. There's half a dozen or more of these seminaries that are gathered above the Berkeley campus. And in the museum... In a glass case is a pile of baseball-sized smooth sling stones. <clears throat> In any event, the Lord says the advancing armies of Israel are going to march right over those piles of sling stones. They're going to trample them, which means that whole army has broken and run. It's in full retreat. As the battle is won, there will be rejoicing, joy being symbolized by wine. All over the Old Testament, wherever there's wine or raisins or sweet things, that's a picture of joy. Okay? Further, he says, all that army is going to be filled up like a sacrificial basin. Now, one, that, that, a basin would be normally one that's filled with the blood of a sacrifice, where the animal is sacrificed, you catch the blood, and, the, and then you hand that basin of blood to the priest and the priest would dip his fingers in it and spatter the four corners of the altar to complete the sacrifice okay in this case he says the army is going to be filled with under the lord's leadership under the lord's affirmation 
and under the Lord's joy with that kind of overflowing expression. In verses 16 and 17, we get a summary statement out of the chapter. And the Lord their God will serve them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgins. And when the king comes, second time, second advent, his, and, and his battle with evil is finished, there will be great prosperity and great rejoicing. Now, some of that sounds like Tolkien. Or maybe Tolkien sounds like Zechariah. Okay. All right, Ford's family. Here is the, the text of chapter 9. It, it, it blows right over the listeners, over the people of Judah. It's really not about them. It's about what the Lord is going to do in Israel at some point in the future. It, it'll be their descendants who experience this. Now, as for us, the king did come to Israel 2,000 years ago, and he was rejected. And the Lord God then took the message of righteousness and salvation and through Holy Spirit dispersed that message to the nations surrounding Israel. We're the recipients of that message. My grandchildren are the 23rd generation that's rising behind those who first heard that message of righteousness and salvation. And they received it. They turned and walked away from a vile life. Now, how many generations of faithful followers are rising in your genealogies? Okay? Some of that is for the purpose of rejoicing, and some of that is for starting. Okay? Each of us has the possibility of becoming such a mother or a father of the faith so that when we come to expect the Lord's covering and the Lord's provision and the Lord's protection and the Lord's salvation that's for us and for our children. Now, look around you in a sense. In the culture that we're in, this is a time of need. So, call on him for your families. Call on him for our nation. Call on him for our state. Call on him for communities that we live in. In each of those places, there's breaking, there's brokenness, there's, there's misunderstanding. There's, and, you know, we have, you know, vile things being, being introduced at the, in the government-funded schools. We have, we have uh, laws being passed that are just a curse on the church. Okay, we have things that we just say, Lord, we have to have your protection to stand. And that's what he does. That's his responsibility. We ask, he responds. So let's pray. Lord God Almighty, it's uh, really easy to be impatient with you when things don't go our way. Please forgive us, Lord. Uh, You are God and we are not. You are the one who leads us and provides us. Lord, provides for us. Uh, Lift our eyes off our checkbook balances our infirmities, and our broken things. We want to be those who lift their eyes like Zechariah did to see what you're doing and following in your footsteps. Lead on, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.